Welcome back for season two of Artbreaker, a podcast about innovation in the art world. Welcome to another episode of Artbreaker. I'm your host, Amelia Manderscheid, also known as Bossy Meals, and continuing the theme of art and finance. Today, I am interviewing Arturo Cifuentes, a professor at Columbia and also has a PhD from Caltech. And he has dedicated most of his life and his time to determining first the financial markets and now pivoting to how art and finance go hand in hand with a new book he is releasing this fall called The Worth of Art. And I have received a copy of the book in advance, and I'm very excited to be joined by Arturo today to talk about the book and his research and what we can learn about art and finance from Arturo. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time and interest, Amelia. Happy to be here. Yeah. And we first met at Columbia University when I was getting my MBA, and you were teaching a course on art and finance, which I didn't think I needed to take, but I certainly enjoyed sitting in on a few times. Yeah, that was a few years ago. I remember later you went and you gave a couple of presentations at my class that were very useful. The students love it. So I think we have a love for art in common, I guess. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that's where your interest in, in writing this book began, your own passion for art, correct? That's correct, actually. We have been living in New York for 30 years. And when we moved to New York, I used to live in California. When we moved to New York, actually, we fell in love with art. Well, finance is uh, my, my profession, I guess. But the two things go hand in hand together. Yeah. Sometimes people feel offended when you say, finance and art. Yeah, they think money is sort of a dirty thing that should not be part of art. But uh, both finance and art, they have been together since the very beginning. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting because you can say some interesting things about art, looking at the financial aspects of the, the art market. Can you elaborate further on what you mean by that? Well, that's a good question, actually. Uh, if two things, right? Finance and art, they have gone together since the very beginning because at the end of the day, artists, they have to make a living. Yeah, I mean, let's start with there, yeah? But the interesting thing is that if you look at the painting, for example, or any piece of art, they have a dual personality. I mean, there are two elements in a painting, for example. I mean, a painting could be an object of aesthetic appreciation. You look at the painting and you feel amazed by what you're seeing. And at the same time, a painting could be a very valuable financial asset. I mean, something valuable from the investment point of view. And the two things go together, yeah? I mean, there is nothing wrong with that, yeah? So what is more interesting, perhaps, is that you can look can look at the prices people have paid for paintings and just analyzing the prices you can discover some very interesting things about the art market things that in some cases scholars or art experts have suspected and sometimes you find things that they contradict them yeah and that's very interesting i think that's very exciting so is that why you decided to write the book 
Well, you know, I mean, that, that's a more philosophical consideration. We decided to write this book because we thought it would be fun. We have written with my co-author, who actually happens to be my wife also, several papers. And we had a lot of fun. We discovered certain things that uh, people suspected were true and certain things that the, nobody had thought about. I was also teaching at Columbia that we saw I had enough material to, to put together a book. But it was a lot of fun, actually. It's really exciting to look at prices as elements that tell you interesting things. Let me give you just one example. People have uh, done many experiments in the past. And they have claimed that people in general prefer blue, that blue is the color they prefer. And actually, if you look at the prices, you find the, the evidence there. I mean, a blue mirror is more valuable than a brown mirror. Yeah, and the prices tell you that. Then you discover other things you didn't suspect. For example, that in certain artists, the price paid for a portrait orientation is much more valuable than a landscape, horizontal orientation. For example, Joseph Albers uh, was very particular about color. Yeah, uh, in fact, he devoted the last 20 years of his life to color. And uh, he wrote a very controversial book called Interaction, uh, Color Interaction. And he claimed that the way color, the colors interact with each other was a major uh, driving force uh, behind the painting. And actually, it seems like the market doesn't really give a damn about that. The market for Albert's paintings, the prices actually are driven by the dominant colors and not by the interaction. I'm not sure whether he would be happy about that, but that's what the prices tell us. In the case of Rothko, for example, the prices of Rothko, if we look at the color, is driven by the diversity of the color palette. But actually, you can measure that in a very quantitative fashion. So it's very interesting to discover these things. I mean, the numbers tell you a lot of things that are not quite obvious. And also from the investment point of view, I mean, you can figure out, for example, let's say you have a portfolio of stocks and bonds and you decide to wanna buy, you want to buy a painting. I mean, you can do certain analysis to see if that particular painting you want to add to your portfolio will be good or bad from a financial point of view, I mean, where it increase the diversity of the portfolio, something like that. Well, most people, I think, if they're buying a work of art, they would at least research if the price is fair for what work they are prospectively going to buy. They might not look at it from a portfolio perspective, right? Which I fully agree, I, I fully agree with you. A lot of people actually buy art uh, that way. Yeah. And that's perfectly okay. I mean, nothing wrong with that. But some people, for example, have been advising wealthy investors on, from the point of view of wealth management whether it would make sense to add art to your portfolio. And it, and it makes a lot of sense, yeah? If you buy the right artist, it might be a good idea from an investment point of view, which it doesn't invalidate the thought that if you see a painting and you love it, go ahead, buy the painting, yeah, by all means. <laughs> right, but I think most people want to make sure that at least even if they love it, for what they are buying, even if they don't care about investment, you know, they want to make sure that it's a good price to pay. And I think a lot of a lot of people, especially if they're not as knowledgeable of a collector, would feel 
would have a hard time buying a, a work of art for any significant amount of money if they didn't have an understanding of the benchmark for which to evaluate the price that they're being asked to pay. Absolutely, absolutely. So was your goal then in writing the book, was it to illuminate some of these aha moments you've had where what seems obvious isn't actually true or the data that you had had some findings that you were surprised by? What was what was your ultimate goal in writing The Worth of Art? Enjoyment is also a good motivation, but you always, as you said, when you discover something that you suspected or you didn't know, you say, aha, this is really great. And that gives you a very good feeling. For example, I mean, it has been speculated that Picasso was a revolutionary artist, revolutionary in the sense that, or conceptually, the other word, the other term people use, in the sense that he did his most valuable work when he was young. And then, well, I don't want to say that the quality went down because it was still very good, but it was declining in a certain sense. Well, the uh, prices reflect. Actually, the, price, the prices reflect that. Maybe we won't talk about what is which is better or if the quality went down, but what does the market say? What is the market? What is the validation come from the pricing? The, the market validates that. The market prices, the, the top prices for Picasso are around the time when he was 25, when he painted the Le Demoiselle d'Avignon. And from then on, the prices go down. So from the price point of view, Picasso is really a very clear case of a revolutionary artist. Now, Cezanne is the opposite. Cezanne essentially painted the same thing all his life. And he got better and better and better. And actually, the price is... Say yeah, exactly. Have you been there, by the way? Uh, no, close by, yeah. He painted more than 70 times. And each time got better and better and better. So if you look at the prices, Amelia, the prices for the paintings he did in the later period of his life, the market priced those uh, much higher. Yeah. So whether he was painting a, a landscape or a, a portrait or even a still life, the prices got higher and higher when he was older. So, I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, so you discover those things and you say, gee, I mean, that's a, that, that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. And a number of other things. I mean, uh, if you compare, for example, the, the other thing which is very interesting, if you compare the returns, a lot of people focus about prices. For example, several paintings by Picasso uh, were priced beyond 100 million, yeah? But right. many other artists, the returns, which is the difference between what you pay when you bought it and what you pay when you sell it, uh, have been much, much higher than Picasso, for example. Yeah? I think also it's the headlines love to write about the big money spent or the, the thing that sells for the most amount of money in a given auction season like we're in right now. But I do think that to your point about returns, often you're not going to get a return on anything you purchase if it's the headline on the Wall Street Journal. In general, if you're going to be seeking returns, uh, certainly if you're purchasing for an investment, you need to be looking where others are not. With art, you know, not buying the top 10 priced artists at auction, you're going to be wanting to look for, you know, an undiscovered artist. But in reading the book, you know, there, there's no algorithm, there's no formula to tell you which artist will be a good investment in the future, currently anyway. But I enjoyed your point very much in the book. 
There's no Bloomberg terminal equivalent for future returns in the stock market. If anyone knew future returns, then then they would evaporate because everyone would just factor that in and then we would be back where we are. I think that makes things interesting and gives us all a bit of hope for the future of humanity versus you know, machines and AI to determine, you know, future value. But I think what is interesting is the tools that you're using to, right, look at Cezanne comparing to Cezanne, you know, Picasso to Picasso. You're not, you're comparing apples to apples and Mm -hmm. and looking at those artists. I think it is harder, as you say, if you look at art really as a portfolio, do you have any tools that are able to do that? Well, actually, yes. If we're presenting a book, for example, certain tools that are really basic um, statistics. Yeah, any quant person with some a computer software could do it. So basically, the idea is that you assume that the potential investor has a typical portfolio, say real estate, stocks, and bonds, and you say, okay, I'm going to buy an artist such as um, Zhao Wuqi or Richter or John Mitchell how that would fit within my portfolio. Would it improve the risk return profile? Would it add diversity? And the interesting thing, Amelia, is some artists that uh, by themselves, I mean, in isolation might not look very attractive. If you put them in the context of a portfolio, they might be very useful in terms of adding diversity to the portfolio. So that's another dimension, which I think is interesting, yeah. We have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to that, but I think that could be useful also. Yes, I, I agree, especially as you know, I was, we were already discussing how that's not typically how people buy art. And I think what is most interesting about the collector side of art is you often find when when I've you know gone to collectors' homes or conducted appraisals that they will own many works by one artist. You know, they really are interested and curious about their work. And once they have one, they want additional works. Sure. Whether it's, they want Picasso for multiple periods. Is that another form of diversity that you're looking at in your analysis? Well, actually, yes. Because if you look at an artist, I mean, well, Picasso, it's probably the, the most interesting example because Picasso is really several artists at the same time, yeah? Remember, he claimed he could be cubist in the morning, uh, traditional in the evening, yeah? In right. more than one way, I guess. But, but he was like several artists. And you have this, uh, you have that in Richter, for example. I mean, Richter painted uh, many abstract paintings and some are really figuratively. So within the same artist, you can see that difference. For example, is another, there is a Chilean artist, Roberto Mata, a surrealist, the periods are quite different, yeah? Matas from 1940s are quite different than Matas, uh, late Matas, and the market actually speaks with the price and there is a big difference. So even within the same artist, you find very significant differences. And, uh, and the price will tell you that, yeah? Yes, yes, it will. And does your analysis show how owning work from many different periods by an artist helps with portfolio diversification? Yeah, I think it helps, yeah. And I'd love to discuss the research you had done for the market for women artists, uh, specifically. Looking at the market for art by women, one of the goals of the book 
or was it a surprise finding that you came across? Well, if you look at the art market, unfortunately, most of the data pertains men artists as opposed to women simply because uh, women have become a strong presence in the last 50 years. I mean, in any other area you look at, women were prevented from actually participating. So the participation of women, I think it has been uh, a mano a mano with men in the last 50 years. Before it was more difficult for women to participate. Now, having said that, and it's true that right now, the highest price is uh, for painting done by men. But, and this is a, an important but, if you look at the returns, which is another dimension of investment, women have done quite well. For example, Joan Mitchell. Yeah, If you look at Joan Mitchell paintings, they do not command the same prices probably that Roth, but the returns have been extraordinarily much, much better. Yeah. So I think there is an element of excitement there, yeah, discovering some women who have not been fully appreciated, perhaps. So I think that's an exciting development. Yes. And actually, in my own work, I have found that a number of collectors who are using an investment lens, they're still buying what they love, but they are certainly looking at the possibility of returns, are buying works by women artists with that goal in mind. And many of those collectors are men that are looking at the market side of uh, female artists. I personally, you know, I'm passionate about art by women. And I hope to see more women collectors, you know, approaching purchases by, you know, women artists. I would love it to be a little more balanced all around. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, one of the things we're planning to look at with my co-author, we haven't, I cannot give you any conclusions right now because we haven't done yet. It's something we, we have here on the pipeline is to look at Joan Mitchell and the Kooning. Yeah. I mean, the prices of the Kooning, which we can call it the first generation abstract expressionist, and then uh, Joan Mitchell could be from the second generation, even though the prices by the Kooning today are higher, uh, I think we suspect the returns of Joan Mitchell have been much higher. Yeah. Well, so, and if you even look at no. Willem de Kooning, right now when you say de Kooning, you, you have to differentiate. Do you mean Willem de Kooning or Elaine? Oh, I'm sorry. I committed a faux pas. Yes. yes. Uh, I'm, yeah, just, I'm saying... Be, you are you, absolutely right. Yeah. No, no. Look I was at, talking uh, about uh, de Kooning demand. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, his returns are inferior to those of Joan Mitchell. Yeah. Right. But I think it might also be curious uh, to if you looked at Willem de Kooning versus Elaine de Kooning, you know, the his problem with Elaine is uh, former wife. sort of in between. Actually, the other we have in mind is uh, Helen Frankenthaler, who yes. was more or less of the same generation of uh, John Mitchell. I, I think they were, uh, if my memory serves me right, uh, in terms yes. of the age, they're kind of three years apart. So more have you, or less have you read the book Ninth Street Women? Absolutely. I have it here. I can show right. it to you, Amelia. I read it from top to bottom and I enjoy every minute of it. There are three problems with the book, however. Yeah, that book has three mistakes. Okay, tell me. Tell you? Yeah. First one. He claims Roberto Ata, the Chilean writer, was educated in northern Spain. That's not correct. He never visited Spain. Well, as a Chilean, I'll I'll let you have the facts on Roberto Mata, you know, but, so you, but you can check it out. Yeah. The yes. other one 
Uh, I believe he misspelled the name of David Alfaro Siqueiros, the Mexican muralist. Yeah. And the other one, I think there is a painting by Rufino Tamayo, whose name was uh, not correctly attributed. I mean, oh. that is a problem with the name. Yeah, everything else is fine in the book. Now, okay. I'm really big, actually, in a book with 900 pages, you have to have in state. That's all right. Yeah. So, but I just want to show to you that I read the book carefully. Yeah. Yes, you have. And I hope for the next edition they publish, they've listened to this podcast and they can make. Well, I hope that it's the next edition. <laughs> of course. Well, I think that book is just one example of how the market for women been changing. And I think one of your points in the book is, you know, once work by women artists makes it to the secondary market or once they can break through and have gallery representation and, and have, you know, MFA degrees, once women are, you know, included in the art market, then they can do very well, but their work, has to get there, has to make it there. And I think books like Nine Street Women do a lot actually to increase the interest and the marketability of, of an artist's work. Sure. But I think the odds are in women's favor. I mean, if you look at the book market, I think the, the odds are in favor of women in that sense, yeah? Talking the last 50 years. Literary books, women read more no. than men. So books targeted women sell more. I was just I, reading them the other day. Uh, I think that's true, yeah. Yes, so hopefully the odds will will be more in favor for art by women in the future. I would love for that to be the case. And I'm curious, of all the modeling tools, you know, now available to determine Mm -hmm. the, the value of art and collectibles, which do you think has been the most innovative in changing uh, the art market? Well, one thing which is very innovative, I think is very interesting, which uh, we have a chapter in the book. It was a lot of fun to derive the equation. It's the guarantees market. So as you probably, well, you know, this better than anybody, but it's very common that you will take a consignor, will take a painting to an auction house and will negotiate a minimum guarantee. So when the auction house offers a minimum guarantee for that particular painting, there's a very uh, precise mathematical way to make an assessment of the risk you're taking, how much money you have at risk and how to price that risk. And I think that's very interesting also because it's an opportunity for investors. Uh, I mean, there is something called third-party guarantee. So there is a way to participate in the art market. Meaning Uh, if you're not the auction house themselves... Exactly. You know, that's exactly. a house guarantee if the auction house is 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 guaranteeing the work. But the third party, the th- when you say third party guarantee, it, it always sounds like some random cloaked mystery figure. It just means a regular person who's not the yeah, auction. Yeah, it's, it's a regular yeah. person who loves art. Yeah. And wants to potentially, by committing to their bid in advance, we are giving them a financial preferential treatment, essentially a a discount on their purchase should they win. And if they don't win, we we thank them for de-risking the sale for us uh, and giving them a financial compensation. So yes, I think, of course, uh, you know, collectors and and individuals are interested in, in guarantees because it's a way for them to essentially get a discount on something they were going to do anyway by by giving us an advance notice. 
Uh, you're also right. right. I mean, so that's another way to participate and uh, deriving the equations for that because th there is a give and take. I mean, there is a way to kind of make a precise assessment of what should be the risk or the price you actually charge for that. So that's very interesting. The other thing which is very interesting, Amelia, which is another market you're probably familiar with, has to do with uh, art secure lending. Yeah. Yes. Um, a lot of people, uh, not really because they are insolvent, it's more like liquidity issues. Uh, they would like to take a loan and use a painting uh, uh, as a form of guarantee. Should they just like people do with the home equity line of credit? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's exactly the same, and that's very interesting because there is a way to price that to make an assessment. I mean, you make an evaluation on the value of the painting and the risk associated with the, the, the risk profile of the borrower. And then you can make a precise assessment of, well, how much would be reasonable to lend to this person for how long, what interest, and you can assess the risk. Yeah. So that, that's also very interesting. I mean, it, it's a good way to put a more quantitative vent on certain things that sometimes people do based on gut feeling and just intuition, yeah. And I think these tools have really become a part of everyday business for you know the auction houses and financial institutions, I'd say, in the past. 10, 15 years? Is that what your research is? Well, even shorter, yeah. I mean, if you think about, for example, today you can go to a Bloomberg terminal and see projection of commodity prices. Uh, you can calculate prices of bonds. I mean, you can do a lot of things. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that maybe in a few years, I mean, certainly I would expect not in 15 years, but maybe in five, yeah. You're going to be able to go to maybe not a Bloomberg terminal, but be able to say, okay, I have a painting with these characteristics by Renoir, uh, how much should they lend to this particular person who has that painting, for example? Yeah? Or uh, if I want to offer a third-party guarantee for a Modigliani painting with certain characteristics, what would be a reasonable price to charge for that? Yeah, I think that eventually it's going to become easier to do. Yeah. Yes, I think it, it certainly will be easier to do. Now that the tools to calculate that, if 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 you called up the auction house and wanted to do that, they they have their own ways of assessing you know the value of, of the deal very quickly. So sure. you know those, those have become you know institutional tools. They're certainly not mass market tools like like a Bloomberg terminal implies. But I don't know if there'll ever be a mass market desire for those tools necessarily. Well, um, well. In every market, there are people who want to have transparency and people who don't want to have transparency. Yeah, I mean, that has been the history of financial markets. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, I mean, when the market for options got started, people value options intuitively. Today, there are formulas that are more or less used frequently. But I think at the end of the day, that contributes to make the market the bigger, more transparent, and, and more mature in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable. But I think, uh, for example, some of the things we're seeing in artificial intelligence right now, uh, in terms of being able to classify paintings, to determine to which period they belong, things like that, I think it's useful. Yeah, I think those things uh, are not going to eliminate the experts. But I think it's a compliment to what the expert do. So uh, I think it's very exciting. Yeah. I'm always one who would love to have more tools available to to me as as an expert. You know, I think that 
only helps us uh, mm-hmm. to do our work better. And but we always know that there can be a bias or an error even in in those tools. So sure. I think you know one of the things that you talk about in the book that I as an expert, I find just a different way of thinking about the value of art and not a way we normally do is, you know, the value per square inch or square centimeter, you Mm -hmm. know, of a work of art. Can you, can you talk about that a bit more? Because of course, when I appraise value, I will factor in the size or the scale of an artwork, of course, as a part of the value, a smaller artwork, typically not as valuable as a large, but then you can have a too large artwork if it's too heavy or too cumbersome to move or people don't have walls that are big enough to hang it on that is a you know too large for it to be a valuable uh to add to the value of a work have have you found an optimal size of an artwork in your analysis yeah actually that's very interesting because the numbers tell you that amelia i mean First of all, one of the things we have in the book, we look at uh, paintings as very expensive real estate. So basically, a uh, price uh, per square centimeter or uh, per square inch. Yeah? And paintings actually are very expensive. Yeah, For example, Jackson Pollock is probably around $10,000 per square centimeter. Yeah, And um, a good apartment in Manhattan is probably $1 per centimeter square. So Jackson Polo is much more expensive. But going back to the point that you made regarding the size, yes, you're right. I mean, a very big painting. I mean, if you have a small painting, you have a certain price, increases the size, the prices go up. But eventually, a very big painting is problematic because... Uh, either uh, you cannot put it in a normal house, it has to go to a museum or you really have to have a mansion. So that is an optimal size. Yeah, You can see that in the numbers. At a certain point, if a painting becomes very big, you have something like diminishing returns. And actually, there are certain paintings uh, that you couldn't put in a house. Yeah? So certainly that would be uh, my affected price. Yeah, But did you find an optimal size for a, a painting specifically? Uh, you know, I mean, not in general, but I remember we look at Renoir and any, or uh, let, let me put it this way, in general terms, any painting, well, I, I'm a metric kind of guy, yeah, meters are, comes easier to me. I would say that any painting that is more than uh, six square meters, so that would be, let's say, two by three, Two meters would be like six feet uh, by nine feet. Two meters by three meters becomes uh, problematic. If you exceed that point, probably it will not fit in most living rooms or big. Uh, now we are talking about the bank or a conference room in right. a big company, and then it's just a museum. Yeah, I mean. Uh, and not every museum. I mean, in fact, there are certain museums that, for example, I'm thinking about. There is a very, there is an artist that I confess it's a woman. Actually, I was not familiar with. I discovered her to my shame uh, recently in New York. Julia, uh, Julia Meretu, Meretu, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name. Julie Meretu. Julia Meretu, yeah. Her paintings are big, big. Yeah? They are. In fact, we met her in an artistic sense at the Whitney. Uh, yes, you see her retrospective yeah, I mean, at I the Whitney. Think, yeah, I mean, yeah. Her paintings wouldn't fit in um, even in a big apartment uh, in Manhattan, yeah. 
Now, Correct. I don't no, mean that as a criticism, but uh, <laughs> they have to go directly to a museum, I guess. Yes, yes, they do uh, require a much larger scale institutional setting. And, and lucky for her, many museums are, are interested in the work. So that isn't, I think, necessarily an issue. But I do recall we sold a smaller work that she had made earlier in her career. Yeah. And I think it sold for more because there were so few paintings that were of a smaller domestic scale than maybe, you know, your your price per per inch or centimeter calculation would have told you it would. Because I think the scarcity factor or the availability factor is is a hard one to price into any methodologies or analyses, especially if you're only looking at prices of works that have sold, right? Let's say a, a painter like Monet you know, the vast majority of, of his work is in museums and it will never be sold and it never was sold exactly. or it was sold privately for a, a nominal amount of money in 1925. So how do you look at an artist like that who might not actually have a lot of data points for sales, but clearly I think we would all agree that Monet is a art historically and, and financially uh, critical artist. Absolutely. I agree with you. For example, I mean, the water lilies you have at the orangerie wouldn't fit in any house and the price nevertheless would be extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, it would be very difficult to put a price to that. Yeah. But uh, I mean, like the same happens in real estate. I mean, uh, what's the price of Central Park? I mean, it's not for sale, but certainly, I mean, it would be extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. so it certain would. things are off the charts. Yeah. But that's part of the excitement. Yeah. But you don't have any way to try to price that into your analyses? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, if you don't have a lot of data points, uh, obviously there is a level of speculation there. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thesis of the book is that if you look at data based on existing data, you can derive certain conclusions. Yeah. And in most cases, you do have a lot of data. Now, if you don't have a lot of data, well, there are certain ways you can expand the data. There are certain artificial intelligence uh, methods, machine learning, to create what's called basically fictitious data that is compatible with real data, and then you can derive conclusions from that. Yeah, that, that that's a very big area, a research area right now in finance. It's called synthetic data generation, and that, that's an exciting thing that uh, we hint a little bit of that in the book, but, but it's a very exciting new area right now. Well, I guess you'll have to write a second book and then I'll be able to hear more about it. Well, I do have to read again, yeah. <laughs> well, but that's that's part of the excitement, yeah. A lot of things are going on right now. I mean, there are very new developments every day. As I said, machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's one of the areas in which they are being used in the art market, not only to price uh, paintings, but also to identify, for example, the painter behind a certain painting and things like that. Even some people have tried, this is really speculative this moment, but how can you predict if a 28-year-old artist is going to be successful or not? Successful meaning financially successful, yeah? So if you are given access to 500, 20-something, 25, 26-year-old artists, which one do you think are going to make it big? I mean, that, that, that's a, 
that's a big, interesting question from a financial point of view. And have any models? So that people have done that. There are some preliminary results. I mean, in a very tentative fashion, it seems like if you win a big prize when you are young, that helps. Uh, being associated with a certain institution that have a marquee value, museums or uh, galleries that are important, make a difference if you are uh, younger than 30. In fact, the data seems to show that there is a big chance of success if you have been successful before turning 30. It's extremely difficult for an artist to become successful uh, at a later age if you have not been successful when you were young. So if you were to bet on somebody, it's kind of obvious, but the, the data support that anyone who is adopted in a way by a big gallery or has an exhibition in a museum or won a big prize before turning 30, and presumably living in New York or London, you're much better off than living in any other city. I mean, that seems to be the, the finding. Yeah, It's yeah. kind of obvious, but the, the data actually show you that. The data backs up what seems yeah. like an obvious finding. And I think what's interesting, but but not related to that at all, is how many, especially markets, let's say, for, for female artists who are deceased or very elderly are that are coming to the market now. And, and you're seeing work by them when they were 30, work by them when they were 40 and 50, not, not just work they're making sure. late in life, certainly. And how, you know, how much those markets are developing um, posthumously, you know, uh, sure. for, for these artists, mostly because they weren't a part of the market when they were younger, but then how the market is pricing those. And if you look at an artist like Lynn Drexler, you know, how, how the works from, let's say, 1962 are priced differently than the ones from 75, um, you know, based on on the desirability of, of that artist's work. But this all of this pricing and all of this market activity is happening just in the last, you know, two and three years. Yeah. Well, and actually, if you're thinking about a, a women artists, I mean, the case that comes to mind, Carmen Herrera, a, the Cuban artist, um, she died recently. I mean, I think she was almost 100 years old. And she, her paintings actually brought the half a million uh, price only recently. And now she had basically she has been rediscovering the last ten years, yeah. Yes, and I and I think she wasn't showing with you know a gallery before she was thirty. Exactly, right? yeah. She's the exception, yeah. I mean, yes. but that's the good thing about artists. There are a lot of exceptions. Yeah, I mean, you have general rules, and then you have the exceptions, and the exceptions makes everything it interesting, interesting and uh, intriguing. Yes, it does. Well. I've so appreciated your time today, and I would love to end our conversation with how you end the book, if we're not giving away too much in advance, but you give three pieces of advice to keep in mind, and can you share them with our audience today? Uh, I'll be happy to. I'm very happy that you found those advice interesting, Amelia. Yeah, I I think if my memory serves me right, one advice we we put at the end of the book uh, was that... um, you should never buy something you hate, yeah? So if you wanna buy a painting and you think you don't like it, uh, don't buy the painting just for the financial aspect of it because if you hate it, you're gonna, you might get stuck with something you're gonna have to look at for the rest of your life and you're gonna- Exactly. Hate it. It's gonna be, in addition to being a very poor investment. 
The other thing we said, if you buy a painting, don't put it on top of the fireplace, yeah, because the heat is gonna damage the canvas. Never do that, yeah. And I think the last one, which is uh, perhaps more controversial, but I think it makes sense is that if you have a chance to go and see an exhibition, actually, if you have two choices, you can see an exhibition by uh, somebody you are familiar with and you know, and then an exhibition at the same time by a new artist or something new, go with a new thing, because it's always much more exciting, I think, to acquire new knowledge and discover something you didn't know, as opposed to consolidating your uh, old knowledge. Uh, I mean, the new is always more exciting, yeah. I think. I, I agree with you on uh, all fronts. And it's been such a pleasure having you here today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for reading uh, our book, Amelia. Thank you yes. very much. Thank you. Please reach out to me directly if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas on future episodes at meals at bossymeals.com. That's meals with a Z, M-E-A-L-Z, at bossymeals.com. And thank you for joining me for this season of Art Breaker.